to John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 35 through 47. John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 35 through 47. Our focal passage will begin in verse 41, but like last week, I want to back up to verse 35 for context. Last week we considered the Galilean crowd's response to Christ's proclamation that He was appointed by the Father to give them the food which endures to eternal life and that it is God's work that they believe in Him. The Galileans demanded a sign from our Lord to prove His claim. He clearly claimed to have higher authority than even Moses himself. So surely he could prove his claim by feeding them with bread out of heaven, just as Moses had fed their fathers in the wilderness. Except, as our Lord pointed out to them, it wasn't Moses who fed their fathers, but God the Father. And it was he who gives the true bread out of heaven, which gives life to the world. He went on to explain that He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven and that all coming to Him will never hunger or thirst again. Of course, meaning in a spiritual sense. However, it is only those the Father has given Him who will come And these will certainly have eternal life in Him, being raised unto life in the final judgment by Christ Himself. And that is where we will pick up the narrative this morning. So please stand with me if you are able in reverence for the reading of the God-breathed Word. John chapter 6, picking up in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have Come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus, and we pray now that you would help us, help us to rightly divide the word of truth that you have given to us. We thank you that you have given it to us, but we want to make a right use of it. And so, Father, by your Spirit, guide us into the truth. Help us to come to know you better, to come to know our Lord Jesus better, and to love you and our Lord Jesus better. Conform us evermore to his image, and all of this to your glory. We pray it again in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Picking up in verse 41, it says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Notice the transition at this point. Those who were fed the loaves by Jesus are referred to as the crowd from the beginning of the chapter up to this point. Over and over, they are the crowd. At least if you have an NASB. But those grumbling among themselves, after our Lord explained that He is the bread of life, which comes down out of heaven, are referred to as... The Jews, not the crowd. And this is significant because as we have seen on numerous occasions in the beloved disciples' gospel to this point, the term most often denotes the Jewish religious establishment. So, the grumblers were not merely the common folk who had been part of the Galilean multitude, but they were part of the Jewish religious establishment probably the rulers of the synagogue in Capernaum. As you will recall, this entire back and forth was occurring in the synagogue. Evidently, some of these Jews personally knew Christ's human parents. Perhaps some of them had watched Jesus grow from a small child into the man that sat before them. They knew of his family's poverty and low estate in society. So how could he possibly claim to be the bread that came down out of heaven, which imparts eternal life? For that matter, how could he claim to have a heavenly origin at all? However... They did not express their doubts and unbelief directly to Him. Instead, they grumbled among themselves. Is that not our fallen human nature on full display? The cowardice that arises from it. Some big claim 
declaration or event occurs and the whole town starts talking about it. Or now with social media, people all over the world start talking about it. Everybody has an opinion. And nobody really saw what happened and the few who saw it didn't understand what they saw, but everybody's talking about it. Of course, nobody's bothering to talk to the one who actually made the declaration or participated in the event, but everyone's delighted to talk about him. Now, I realize that none of us would ever participate in this sort of activity. Surely nobody in this room would ever engage in gossip or grumbling. Um, You guys know that I grew up in Alabama and moved here from Georgia, and so, of course, I'm familiar with country music. And so for those of you who are familiar with country music, um, there's a George Strait song. And uh, in that song, he says, If you'll buy that, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona, and I'll throw the Golden Gate in free. If we're honest... All of us have participated in this sort of thing at some point. You can come and tell me you haven't, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I won't believe you. (laughs) I just won't. This is just our fallen human nature. We all love to talk about other people. Thankfully, God is cleansing us from such things. But I would venture to guess that at least some of us still struggle with it from time to time, myself included. And it's bad enough to grumble against someone without seeking further clarification from him about what occurred or what he was teaching. But this was the Lord of glory. This was God incarnate about whom they were grumbling. And almost two millennia later, not much has changed. Our Lord continues to be offensive to fallen man and for much the same reasons. The idea that this man from Nazareth was God incarnate is a stumbling block to many. And likewise, the idea that He alone is the way to eternal life is offensive in our egalitarian society. I had a conversation with a brother this week in which we discussed the sentiment behind the coexist bumper sticker you see on a lot of cars. I know you've all seen this sticker. It's everywhere. I've seen it where I came from. I've seen it all over the place here. In fact, I've probably seen it more since I got here. Christianity is necessarily opposed to that idea. We cannot coexist in the sense that that bumper sticker is encouraging. Jesus said that He is the bread of life. It isn't like when we go to the grocery store and there are several different types of bread from which to choose. There's only one bread of life. 
And it is the bread given to us by God the Father through His Son, who is Himself, that bread. Fallen man doesn't like that for several reasons. But the primary reason is because it means that ultimately he is not able to control his own destiny. We love our independence, don't we? Man cannot provide this bread for himself. He cannot work to earn it. He cannot obtain it by his own means. He cannot find his own substitute for it. He can't feed it to himself. In fact, he can't even cause himself to hunger for it in the first place. Only God can provide, prepare, and nourish mankind with this bread. All mankind's futile attempts by their false religions result in utter failure and death. It is only by feasting upon this bread that eternal life is imparted. Like the Jews in this passage... We have a problem believing that such bread comes down from heaven as the gift of God. We think we must somehow produce or earn it ourselves here on earth. As A.W. Pink observed, quote, Pride, the wicked pride of the self-righteous heart, is responsible for unbelief. Men despise and reject the Savior because they feel not their deep need of Him feeding upon the husks which are fit food only for swine. They have no appetite for the true bread. And when the claims of Christ are really pressed upon them, they still murmur. End quote. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Grumbling and gossip very rarely produce anything helpful. Though their grumbling was not spoken directly to him, our Lord knew what was on their hearts and minds. Rather than allowing them to continue their grumbling, he directly addressed their concerns. He explained their rejection of him and again invited them to feast upon the heavenly bread that he offered. He said, No one can come to me. The Greek word dunatai, which is translated as can, literally means to be able or to have power. No one has the power or ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is what I want you to notice, or at least one of the things I want you to notice about this verse, verse 44. All five of the doctrines of grace are taught by our Lord in this one verse alone. First, we see the total depravity or moral inability of fallen man. No sinner has the moral ability to choose to come to Jesus by faith because fallen man is hopelessly enslaved to sin. As I mentioned last week, Scripture says, "...the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God." Listen to this. These are the words of Scripture. "...for it is not even able 
to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is a moral inability to please God, to choose God. Why? Because again, Scripture says that unregenerate men are dead in their sins and trespasses and are by nature children of wrath. We do not start from a place of innocence as so many suppose in our day. And this is because we lost our innocence when our father, according to the flesh, Adam, fell into sin. God created Adam in a state of innocence and placed him under a covenant of works. God gave him the righteous law of the covenant, which was composed of the law of his creation and a positive command that he was not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, he was given the natural or the moral law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And a positive law particular to this covenant, which was that he was forbidden from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obedience would have merited the reward of eternal life. Transgression of the covenantal law would merit the penalty of death, not only for Adam, but his posterity as well, because Adam was the federal or covenantal head of this covenant, meaning that all humanity was placed under this covenant under the headship of our father according to the flesh, Adam. When Adam fell in sin, all his posterity who descend from ordinary procreation fell in Him. That's us. We who are the product of sinners are by nature sinners ourselves. God's creatures were made such that they produce after their own kinds. This is basic creational, uh, creation 101. Go back to Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2 and you'll see this. <clears throat> Dogs produce dogs, cats produce cats, cattle produce uh, cattle, sinners produce sinners. As King David wrote, under divine inspiration, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. From the moment we are conceived in our mother's womb, we are sinners which as I mentioned a few weeks ago means we're also living human beings that should have all the protections under the law that any other human being does. But that's a side note. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless There is none who does good. There is not even one. All those in Adam are spiritually dead, meaning that they are alienated from and hostile toward God. Because remember, eternal life means eternal communion with God. And so spiritual death means alienation from God. Now this does not mean fallen man is an automaton or a cosmic puppet 
being forced against his will to do things by the heavenly puppet master we call God. That would make God the author of sin, which is impossible since he is perfectly holy. Scripture is clear that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Man, even in his fallen state, is a volitional creature. What it does mean, however, is that man has lost the moral ability to choose God. Fallen man still has the capacity to freely make choices. But he chooses according to the desires and inclinations of his heart. And his heart is naturally hardened against God. Scripture says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? As R.C. Sproul explained, quote, We have a will that enables us to choose to do what we want to do. Prior to the fall, we also had a good inclination enabling us to choose the good. It is precisely this inclination to the good that we lost in the fall. Original sin does not destroy our humanity or our ability to make choices. The natural ability or faculty remains intact. What was lost is the good inclination or righteous desire for obedience. The unregenerate person is not inclined to obey God. He could choose the things of God if he wanted them. Or in our context, we might say, if he hungered for them. But he does not want them. Our wills are such that we cannot freely choose what we have no desire to choose. The fundamental loss of a desire for God is the heart of original sin. The lack of desire for the things of God renders us morally unable to choose the good. End quote. And that is precisely what our Lord meant when He said, No one can come to me. No one has the moral ability to come to Him. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. But praise God that He did not stop there. He says... No man can come to me unless. So there's an exception. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, the remedy to the moral inability of man is rooted in God the Father. He makes the choice to draw certain sinners to his Son for salvation. This choice is not rooted in them, but in Him. That is, God unconditionally elects certain sinners to be reconciled to and adopted by Him as sons through Christ. Scripture says the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to Himself, listen to this, according to the kind intention of His will. 
as it says in another place. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. As Dr. James White rightly remarked, quote, It is not the free will of man that comes to the rescue, but the free will of God. End quote. Ultimately, our salvation does not depend on a choice we make, but a choice God made before the world was. That does not mean we don't make a choice, but that means our choice is rooted in a prior choice. Apart from God's choosing, we will never choose rightly. As some of you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist environment And the idea that God must draw someone before they could savingly come to Christ was taught and believed. However, this drawing was essentially a wooing of the soul whereby someone was persuaded to choose faith in Christ. The idea was basically that God has done His part to save you by sending His Son to die on your behalf and sending His Holy Spirit to draw you to Him. So you should finish the job by choosing faith in Christ. God's just waiting. In no sense does God internally influence the will of man in this belief system. It is God, through His Holy Spirit, merely persuading someone to believe in His Son with the very real possibility that his drawing will fail and the person will not choose Christ, will not come to Christ. That's consistent with the majority report among American evangelicalism. The overwhelming majority affirm that view of this drawing. The problem is that It's not the sort of drawing that our Lord was talking about in this verse. That is not what He meant at all. Consider for a moment that those given by the Father in verses 37 through 40... Remember, I read that for context. Those given by the Father in verses 37 through 40 are identical with those drawn in verse 44. We know this because the final estate of... The given and the drawn is the same. Our Lord says, I will raise him up on the last day. If there is a possibility that any of those drawn would not be raised up by Christ on the last day, then we must conclude that Jesus is a failure, a liar, or both, because he said it is the will of the Father that of all that he has given him, he would lose nothing. And... Adding to that, he promised that he would raise up all those drawn to him by the Father on the last day. If even one of these was lost, then Jesus would have failed to accomplish the Father's will and to fulfill his own promise. Our salvation would not be secure. There would be a break in the Holy Trinity itself. Do you see the depth of the problem here? 
God forbid. May it never be. He who is the embodiment of truth could never lie. He is faithful to His Word. He is faithful to His promise. And He has the power to bring it about. Furthermore, the Greek word translated as draws is the same root word that is used in verses like John 21.6 where the disciples were not able to haul in their fishing net due to how full of fish it was. Or Acts 16.19 where some men seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Or Acts 21.30 where the people took hold of Paul and dragged him out of the temple. I think you get the point. This is not merely an attempt at persuasion. This is to compel someone. Our Lord was saying that the Father literally drags such individuals to Him. You might say that by His grace, He irresistibly draws them to Christ. That does not mean He drags them kicking and screaming against their wills. Think about it for just a moment. How else would you transport a dead person? They're not going to get up and walk. They're not going to get up and hold your hand while you walk down the street. None of the people who are drawn by the Father are able to come apart from His drawing because they're all spiritually dead. The Father draws them these spiritually dead individuals to Christ, that they might receive the bread of life and live. Apart from the bread, they're not going to live. Apart from the drawing, they're dead. As stated in our confession, when God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, He frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by His grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. In other words, He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, restoring the moral ability we lost in the fall so that we are able and certainly do choose to come to the Son by faith. Again, as our Lord said in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father's giving precedes the elect's coming, and the elect's coming is ultimately rooted in the Father's giving. The elect truly do come to Christ by faith. But even that faith is a gift from God. Of those drawn to Christ by the Father, our Lord promised, I will raise him up. That is, raise him up to the resurrection of life. He does not promise to raise up all mankind without exception to a resurrection of life. Now, remember in chapter 5, we learn he does raise up all mankind without exception. But some are raised up to a resurrection of life, and some are raised up to a resurrection of judgment. Okay? This is only talking about the first group, those raised to the resurrection of life. 
Only those who are given to Him by the Father come to Him to receive the bread of life. And what is the bread of life? Well, as our Lord would go on to explain, and we'll hopefully, Lord willing, we will get to this soon. It is His flesh and His blood that constitutes this bread of life. In other words, it is the sacrifice by which He makes atonement for the sins of His people. He does not make atonement for the sins of all humanity, but particularly for those chosen and given to Him by the Father. We might refer to this as a limited or particular atonement. Limited only in the sense of limited in its intention, uh, its scope, not in its power. Uh, Aimed at a particular people. Scripture says, Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. However, He does not make intercession for those who do not draw near to God through Him. He only only intercedes for those who do draw near to God through Him. And how do they draw near to God through Him? Faith. By faith in Him. Scripture continues on. It says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That is, true Israel, God's elect people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Likewise, our Lord would plainly say on a later occasion, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He does not lay down his life for the goats or the wolves. He lays down his life for the sheep alone. Those our Lord raises up are raised on the last day. Meaning he preserves them to the end. None of the group with which he started falls away. They persevere to the end. As I mentioned a few moments ago, he does not lose even one of them. And this is the doctrine known as the perseverance, or as I prefer it, the preservation of the saints. Those chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit are certainly, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and finally glorified. As it says in our confession, this perseverance of the saints does not depend on our own free will. In fact, it doesn't depend on anything in us. But on the unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. It is based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God the abiding of His Spirit, the seed of God within us, and the nature of the covenant of grace. 
the certainty and infallibility of our perseverance is based on all these things. In other words, it's based wholly, completely, entirely in God and not us. We cannot be unborn again. Once we are regenerated, adopted as sons of God in Christ and placed under His federal headship as part of a redeemed humanity, we cannot fall away. God will not deny Himself. Scripture says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Not might be, not we hope they will be, they certainly will be made alive. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is, we have borne the image of Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is, we will bear the image of Jesus Christ. And again, the apostle wrote, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Lord continued, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. He's quoting from Isaiah. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. None of them refuse to come. Everyone, that's all inclusive. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. As John Calvin observed, quote, The only wisdom that all the elect learn in the school of God is to come to Christ. For the Father who sent him cannot deny himself. End quote. However, we must take notice that everyone who does not come to Christ has not heard and learned from the Father and has no part in him, which was the estate of these grumbling Jews. This was his purpose. He was explaining their grumbling to them. He continued, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Our Lord did not back down in response to the grumbling. Rather, He doubled down. Again, he asserted his heavenly origin and eternal communion with the Father. This is the Word who was with God in the beginning. Nobody else has seen the Father except the Son whom the Father sent. He who has been in the bosom of the Father from eternity is uniquely qualified and equipped to explain him. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It's not 
he who believes will receive eternal life as a reward. No, he says, he who believes has eternal life. Otherwise, as we have seen, he would not be able to believe because no one can come to him apart from the work of God in all the ways we've already considered. The presence of saving faith indicates and evidences that we have already passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. We have come and continue to come to Jesus, our prophet from whom we hear the word of God our Father, our priest who has made atonement for our sins and ever lives to make intercession for us, and our king who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who conquers our spiritual enemies. Scripture says all his enemies will be placed under his feet. But again, the opposite is true. Like these grumbling Jews, he who does not believe does not have eternal life. He remains alienated from God in his sins and trespasses. And his only hope, if he were to hope, would be in an act of God to change that. In closing, I want to mention four takeaways from this passage. First, we must seek to be those who learn from the Father instead of those who grumble about His provision for us. We must... Quietly, patiently, listen. I, in my role as a father myself, uh, I've been trying to impart this lesson to my children. You will learn more if you will be quiet and listen than you will when you talk. We need to learn that lesson too. Uh, especially when it relates to God. We need to quit thinking we know what we think we know and instead we need to listen so that we really know. God has graciously given us the heavenly bread instead of leaving us in such a fallen condition that we don't even realize we should hunger for it in the first place. Before he acted in our lives, maybe on an intellectual level, we realized, well, I need something. But we did not know we need to hunger for this bread, much less did we actually do it. And if we didn't even hunger for it, we certainly didn't seek it. It's God's work that we hunger. It's God's work that we come. It's God's work that we eat. And it's God's work that we are satisfied. 
nourished forever, never to hunger or thirst again. Second, salvation is completely and wholly the work of God. He chooses us who in our natural fallen state are at enmity with Him. Irresistibly draws us to Christ who then makes atonement on our behalf by offering Himself as the uh, perfect sacrifice for our sins and then He preserves us to the end. Not only in the sense that He ensures we spend eternity in heaven. It's not just an endless succession of moments where we're alive. Alive in the presence of God even. But also that He perfectly conforms us to the image of His Son. That He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That because of this He communes with us. He has fellowship with us. We're not just in His presence We're in His bosom. We're in Christ. It says the Son is in the bosom of the Father. And we're in Christ. Where does that leave us? In the bosom of the Father. He embraces us forever. As the beloved disciple wrote in the first of his epistles, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not something we have to wait for. We currently, presently, if we believe in Christ, we're joined to Him by faith, we presently are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Think about that. We're already the children. But it's going to get better. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Third, you cannot have fellowship with the Father without the Son whom He sent. All the world religions are futile attempts by fallen men to achieve some warped form of eternal life. Scripture says the testimony of God is this, That God has given us eternal life. We didn't work for it. We didn't merit it. We didn't in any way get it. No, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. If you want to love your neighbor, you must tell them the truth. Their false religion will not save them. It's not arrogance. It's not intolerance. It's truth. And it's loving to tell this truth. But we must make sure that we're believing it ourselves first. And finally, fourthly and finally, the only way to have the Son and the life that is in Him is by believing in Him. That is, trusting in Him. We must be joined to Him by faith alone. 
And so I want to give the call. Come to Him in faith today. Now is the time for salvation. He bids those whom the Father has given Him come. In His own words, our Lord said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. We want to thank you for all of these things we've discussed because it absolutely excludes any possibility of the pride or the boastfulness of man. In no sense can we take credit for the fact that we are the redeemed sons of God in Christ. This is completely the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, our triune God. And so we acknowledge that and we thank you for the unspeakable gift that you've given us in sending your Son down from heaven, nourishing us with the bread of life. Father, I pray that you would help us to not be greedy and stingy, but instead... Help us to share this bread. Help us to bid others come and be nourished by it. Help us to take seriously the mandate that we've been given to tell others about Jesus. And not only to tell them, but to command them on the authority of Christ Himself to command them to come to Him, to bow the knee, to obey Him who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But Father, help us to be obeying Him ourselves. Conform us more and more to His image. But help us never take our eyes off of the one whose image we're being conformed to. This is all about Him unto your glory. And we praise you for that. Again, it is in His name we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.